Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and today our guest is Patty McCarthy Metcalf, who is the Executive Director of Faces and Voices of Recovery. We're going to be talking a little bit about how harm reduction and uh, the recovery movement can work together. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book, our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge Layla support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Patty McCarthy Metcalf, is with us. We're going to bring her on right now. Patty, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing great, Ken. Thanks for having me on your show today. Well, it's great to have you on the show. You know, I think things are changing a lot uh, in the world of addiction treatment and recovery and all those things. You know, I was had have had experience over the last 20 years as, you know, a consumer, as a provider, um, as a support group leader all over the place. Um, things have changed, um, and I think it's a really interesting time to be involved in all of this, Um, but let's start, uh, tell us a little bit about Faces and Voices of Recovery. What is this organization? Sure, I'd love to. Um, Faces and Voices of Recovery is a national organization based in Washington, D.C., and um, we have been uh, mobilizing the recovery community, raising awareness of, of recovery, and uh, organizing groups across the country to um, help more people find recovery. And um, we address public policy so that we can reduce the discrimination that keeps people from uh, seeking recovery and recovery support services. So um, it's, a, it's an organization that really focuses on bringing voices uh, to the table, recovery voices, people um, with lived experience of recovery, that um, would like to get involved to, um, you know, make a difference in in public policy and in their own communities by showing, um, you know, that recovery works to change lives of, of individuals and families and communities. Now, I know when, when uh, we go to the website, the first thing we see is uh, over 23 million Americans are in recovery. And I know this survey where this came from, it's uh, drugfree.org and OASAS, the New York State Office of Substance Abuse, uh, did a survey and asked people, did you used to have a problem with drugs or alcohol, but don't anymore? And the survey result led to the estimate, you know, it's 23.5 million people in recovery. But, you know, this covers all kinds of recovery from people who, quit completely to people who moderated to people who reduced their, you know, drug or alcohol related problems. Um, mm-hmm. It brings me to what I'm, uh, you know, my, my real point of interest, is there a, is there a place in the recovery movement for harm reduction? Is there a place for people who recovered through moderating their drinking through changing their habits? So, you know, that they don't, uh, well, you know, my definition is if you don't fit the DSM criteria for a substance use disorder, then you should any more then you should be considered in recovery, which uh, I consider myself to be in non-abstinent recovery. So is there a place for us? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
you know, and and that's true of that survey. I mean, it's very hard to determine um, what what paths of recovery and how people are defining recovery. But it sure, I mean, in in the end, I mean, it's an awful lot of people. So that's the important thing is the fact that 23 million Americans do identify as being in recovery and how they got there, what path they choose is not as important as the fact that we have a large constituency out there that is getting, you know, we would like to mobilize it, whether or not they are abstinent or non-abstinent paths to recovery. If they identify that way, then um, I think that that's a huge amount of people that have, uh, you know, in essence changed their, their lives by, um, looking at their their relationships with alcohol or other drugs, so that you know, mm-hmm. faces and voices uh, promotes all paths to recovery. Um, I'm I myself am a person in long term recovery. I identify that way because I haven't used alcohol or drugs in over 25 years. I can tell you that I had significant problems with with alcohol and drugs as a young adult into my college years. And I um, did go to treatment, and I did find a uh, you know a path to recovery that worked for me. Um, so I have been you know personally abstinent from alcohol or drugs in t- over 25 years. But I am absolutely know people that do not re- identify as recovery because they you know they they did stop or or change their drinking habits or their drug use uh, from problematic to. Um, and so they and so whether or not they choose to call themselves in recovery is a, is a personal decision and that's that is the position of faces and voices is that we can't um you know endorse just one path over another that there are many paths to recovery mhm mhm well you know i think a lot of people who uh who recovered on their own uh or who uh found a non-absent path to recovery you know i think they're they feel a little uh, afraid of contacting, of you know, calling themselves in recovery or contacting this community. There's a lot of pushback, you know, from people in absent recovery, or there has been historically. I know there's a group on Facebook that's calling themselves Faces and Voices of Recovery. It used to be really good when it was founded, but it was handed over to some new management, and I was kicked off for saying there's such a thing as non-absent recovery. So... Uh, yeah, yeah that's that unfortunately. A, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, Ken. I was just saying, unfortunately, that uh, that's a group that used the same name but didn't realize that our organization existed. And, and we had a, an active Facebook. There's a very small difference in the name of the group um, using the word and versus the ampersand. And so it kind of, uh, it did confuse people for a long time. And we're trying to, you know, kind of let people know that that's not, we don't follow those uh, positions of that organization and or that group. It's simply a Facebook group. Um, but that doesn't mean that uh, we're not inclusive of those who do believe that way. They certainly can uh, contact Faces and Voices and get involved with a recovery movement because um, it's really a bottom line about how to help people change their lives and uh, rebuild their lives and have uh, home, health, community, and purpose and be part of the community, no matter what, um, there's a there's a saying in the recovery community um, for at least in the in the circles that I've been in for the past ten or so years that I've been doing this work in, in recovery community organizations that you're in recovery if you say you are, 
and I like that. It's a simple way to um, mm-hmm. to include be inclusive, and it, it's sort of like uh, uh, some of the recovery community organizations that are out there. They're doing recovery coaching, and there's just a lot of time spent in in groups saying, "Well, how do we define that?" And the bottom line that everybody agreed on agrees on in in many circles, not all, is you're in recovery if you say you are. And you don't even need to say you are if you choose to just say, you know, I mean, I had a problem with alcohol. I chose to, um, you know, go a different direction, but I still want to get involved because I want to help others uh, or I want to share my experience. And and that's really what um, the recovery advocacy movement is about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the really essential point. Um, were you having problems and, uh, you know, did you take care of it so that you don't anymore? That's actually a paraphrase, pretty much of what the DSM says. You know, it says if you have mm-hmm. a, if you have problems with your substance use, that the substance use disorder, and you know when the problems go away, you, you will no longer have the disorder. Mhm. And at the same so. time, I mean, some of the principles around stigma and discrimination. I mean, we can. There are certain areas that we can join together around, regardless of our path pathways to recovery so you know um that's what, what binds people together is some of that shared experience of the feelings or the, the what we experience when we had problems with alcohol uh not necessarily the paths to recovery um the you know because that's diverse and many and um we would not judge someone for you know the the many different paths the native american approaches the spiritual approaches the um the wellness um you know, physical, you know, there's plenty of of approaches that have helped people regain a purpose in their lives. Mm-hmm. Now, do you do you find that a lot of people who are in abstinent recovery that they that they go out of their way to stigmatize people who are not abstinent? And do you think that's a problem? I don't see that as a problem in the field of recovery recovery support or recovery advocacy. I think people have come a long way in terms of understanding because we uh, share with one another um, in different ways on a policy level. But I do think that that's gonna that is remaining in the in the you know the recovery community in terms of the individuals in their own communities, um, and that's again, where we need more work around public awareness. Um, I'm sure that that exists. I'm sure that, you know, in individual communities, whether you're choosing, you know, you, you're talking about the 12-step rooms or um, that there is going to be that stigma. And, you know, uh, my uh, my personal approach to that is that I would not try to change that because that's a you know that's a long long-standing institution and I think we need to recognize different pathways and diversity. Um, but on the public awareness level, I think that there's there's a lot of room for um, you know strategically uh, bringing the message of um, respect for differences and agree to disagree and try to move forward for the common good that. You know, letting people know out there who are struggling with their problems with alcohol, their relationship with alcohol or other drugs, that that there are there's there's ways to um, you know resolve those and get and move to a better place in their lives to rebuild their lives. Um, 
however they choose to do that, I think it's our job to educate about the different pathways. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, and also to remove barriers. I mean, many people with problems with alcohol or drugs, whether severe or long-term or short-term, um, they may be experiencing things due to a criminal justice, criminal history or discrimination in housing or not having access to college because of, uh, for example, a, a felony on their their record prevents them from student financial aid. Um, whether that person would be diagnosed with as an addiction or not, or uh, an alcohol uh, disorder um, in the DSM is really irrelevant. I mean, the fact is they had a conviction that's going to impact their lives forever and not having access to um, financial aid for school. And that's why we have to come together, is to um, fight those, you know, eliminate those barriers and talk about these things on a public policy level and it does not matter in that case what pathway to recovery or whether they even consider themselves in recovery. That's a public policy issue that needs to be addressed. So there's plenty of ways for us to come together, um, to to work together to to help for the greater good of the recovery community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I think people have a right to use uh, any intoxicants that they choose. I don't. I don't recognize the drug laws as valid. Uh, they're not constitutional. Um, you know, the Tenth Amendment says that the uh, con- that the Constitution is limited to the powers specified I- I- in the Constitution. You know, the federal government can't just arbitrarily make laws without amendments, as it did with the drug laws. Um, you know, the drug laws are basically unconstitutional. My take is people have a right to ingest any substance that they choose, just as they have a right to engage in any consensual sexual practices that they choose. Um, I see it's a huge human rights violation. Now, nobody should be put in prison for choosing to use an intoxicant. It just so happens that the intoxicants I like are the ones that are legal, uh, but so many of my friends in harm reduction, they like the intoxicants that are not legal. Um, I think it's a huge problem. What's your take on that? Or do you have one, or do you want to talk about it? Well, you know, that's a that's a huge can of worms. I mean, it's a, it's a complex issue, as you know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the bottom line is if they're, right now, I mean, if there's a law in your state about alcohol or drug use, um, we, you, you're, it's a law. I mean, you can, you can work to change the law or you can abide by the law. And in, in my in my perception, I mean there there are certain things like seatbelt use or, you know, other laws that many pe- people might not want to do, but uh, unless they're going to get involved with changing those laws, uh you know, in my opinion, you're still breaking the law. And whether the law, you know, I, you know, I'm not going to I can't say whether I um I think that we need to look at, you know, incarceration due to using drugs is very different than incarceration due to selling or distributing drugs. Um, So that's the real Mm -hmm. issue is Mm -hmm. that we have way too many people in jail for drug-related crimes that are uh, not, um, that could be treated for for, um, having an alcohol or drug problem that led to them to those crimes. And that's, that's the important thing is that you know we're we're incarcerating individuals who have drug and alcohol addictions, health conditions that need to be treated, 
and instead we're incarcerating and not making a treatment available and even when they get out it's it's very difficult to uh receive treatment and we need to make that more available by ensuring that Medicaid and other public health insurances are fully covering things like medications and substance use treatment services. Um, so we need to eliminate those barriers for like medication assistance treatment for the criminal justice population. But in the case of, you know, we have many people in prison or in jails that are um, struggling with their alcohol or drug addiction and have made choices to, you know, or, or found themselves in, in jail because of criminal behavior. Um, so it's the it's the sale and distribution or violating conditions that needs to be addressed um, so that we can find a community-based response to help people, you know, with with their problems with alcohol, their relationship with alcohol and other drugs. I don't know if that really mm-hmm. answers your question, Ken. I'm, <laughs> um, it's more of a policy issue than a personal issue for me. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not as simple as just saying there's a law, we can't break it. But it's also the fact that, you know, we, we have to, um, just like any other laws that we might not agree with, we have to do the, the, the work and the advocacy work and the policy work to and, and, and totally respect. I mean, I have great respect for, for you to have a differing opinion or may or may not be differing than mine. We haven't had enough time to talk to figure that out. But um, I just think that there's room for everybody, and especially in the advocacy world, as long as we're trying to support those who um, who may have problems with alcohol and drugs and want to get want to rebuild their lives. Mhm. Mhm. Well, it's good to have differing opinions, but um what your response it just brings up another issue which is um yeah, the majority of people that use illegal drugs are not addicted. They don't have a substance abuse disorder according to the DSM. They don't they you know, um but they still if you possess heroin or crack cocaine if you use that, you get arrested. You get put in prison, even even if you don't have a an addiction. I mean, it's less it's less than twenty percent of people that uh, qualify for substance use disorder among substance users. You know, eighty percent are recreational users, but they still get thrown in prison. They don't need drug treatment as a as an alternative. They need to be left alone and have a right to use their substance. As I mean, my substance I like is alcohol. I can go the store and buy it i can i can drink all i want and you know i can choose to drink enough to cause myself problems or i can choose to limit myself to where i have no problems but i'm not going to go to prison for buying it or drinking it or possessing it right well you would go to prison if you if you used it and you drove illegally so you know i mean it's the same well, thing with any I, other I absolutely mm-hmm. I, 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 I absolutely think that people that drive under the influence or people that drive while they're texting on their cell phone or talking on their cell phone, they all deserve criminal sanctions because that's endangering the public, you know. Mm-hmm. But simply shooting heroin, you know, is not endangering the public. The whole different issue. Right. Absolutely. And I but I and and at the same time if if somebody um so if the if the issue is are they selling it, are they you know, distributing it, then yes, they sh- they should have a crime. A, 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 that's a criminal offense, and they should do you know do the time in jail, right? Is that how you see it? Um, 
Well, well, it's a problem the way the drugs, the way the laws are right now. I mean, you get you get uh, put in prison for possession, too. Um, uh, you know, you need a distributor. Uh, you know, the the guy that owns my liquor store down the street should not be put in prison for selling me liquor. Uh, if you're going to have people using drugs, you need someone to sell the drugs. And as mm-hmm. I've learned from the harm reduction conferences, often the drug dealers work to protect their communities and help their communities. You know, in uh, on television, they're always the, the the ultimate evil. In reality, it's not that simple. You know. Right. Oh, I absolutely agree with you on that. I mean, it is not simple. It's a complex problem. Um, you know. I mean, the my concern for the families out there with their young young adults, their their teens that are, you know, choosing to use heroin, or use, choosing to use mm-hmm. illegal drugs, and are overdosing, and and you know, it's at some point, it is it's it's that balance between you know, do we protect the public and our children, or how do we educate them with uh, harm reduction? you know or um or intervene um is there an age limit that people should be able to you know it's it's a very complicated um so i don't you know in my opinion there's no straight black and white answer and i think it the value in it is learning is that people do come together and they learn from one another and that's why our org you know faces and voices is uh, is more interested in convening people to have conversations that that will make differences in their lives and their communities or at the, the federal level. So um, it's it's more important to convene people to have these discussions than it is for us as an organization to have a position one way or another. Mm-hmm. I think that it's the the vehicle for 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 bringing these things to the public's awareness is, is the important thing right now in this you know, controversial time, but also, you know, I mean, if we have 23 million Americans claiming, you know, that that they, re- reporting that they're in recovery, I mean, that's that's a huge lot, that's a lot of people that are changing their lives, so there's something going right, there's something happening mm-hmm. that makes recovery more attractive and getting well more attractive to people who have experienced problems whether it's addiction or problem use um that that many people are 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 reporting that so i think we need to focus on the positive and also learn from our history and how um being divisive does not help a movement at all and so that's why we Mm -hmm. you know Bring people together for different different opinions, trying to reach the same goal of of um, helping people get well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, my intention is not to be divisive or or to mm-hmm. make you commit the organization on a particular point of view. Which, uh, since it's an organization, of course, you can't do that. Um, I would never ask you to do that. But I just want to kick mm-hmm. around the topics, you know, to bring them out into the air. I think, uh, you know, they, they don't get talked about enough. Um, and, you know, the, the intersection between harm reduction and recovery, which I think they should be working together. I think it is a natural uh, alliance that really should go together. And, you know, when I worked in needle exchange, you know, at least half the people I work side by side with are in standard 12-step uh, abstinence-based recovery. But, you know, they say, 
uh, you know, we have to keep people alive first. If people are dead, they're not going to recover. Dead addicts don't recover is the yeah. common saying there. So, you know, you give people yeah. clean needles, you keep them alive. That's the first essential thing. Exactly. Yeah, it's a great great point, a good message. We need to keep the people alive or we won't see that, you know, recovery. Um, it doesn't, you know, one of the things that we have, um, Faces and Voices has a guide to mutual aid resources. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's one of those things where we make it clear there's so many different paths to um to recovery that we encourage people out there to contact us and let us know about the the mutual aid groups um we don't they're not all twelve step there's plenty of other types of groups you know i mean there's even professional groups like uh lawyers nurses anesthesiologists there's pr- plenty of um people who don't identify as one pathway to recovery that can get together and support one another so um, the harm mm-hmm. reduction uh, coalition is, uh, and the approach is, uh, you know, we certainly come together on on issues of national relevance to uh, the people, you know, the individuals, families, and communities that are struggling with um, substance use and the stigma associated with it. And so, we do find a lot of ways to work together and. Um, that's just important for people to know that Faces and Voices does not promote one pathway over another. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, our organization, HAMS, Harm Reduction for Alcohol, we've been listed on your site for like mm-hmm. six years now. I mean, right after we were founded, I yeah. applied to be listed, and we were listed very quickly. So, yeah, I can definitely yeah. testify to the fact that, yes, the Faces and Voices of Recovery is supportive of you know all kinds of different paths, I think many people mm-hmm. in the harm reduction movement, or many people who have moderated their drinking, they uh, they feel a reluctance to approach faces and voices of recovery, mm-hmm. which they should not have to feel because I, I don't think because the organization is open and accepting of many paths. Sure. Well, for your listeners, <laughs> I would encourage you to you know get. Uh, Give us an email, follow us on Facebook because, you know, um, the types of things that we'd like to um, encourage in, in individual states and regions and communities are uh, are really about, um, you know, some of our priorities around helping people uh, find housing and education and removing barriers. Um, for so many people, there's um, the the issue of medication-assisted treatment. That there's uh, there's access issues, um, insurance payments, whether or not people are going to be able to. You know, we're we're advocating for um, Medicaid and other insurances to fully cover medications, and that's a that's a right um, to people with with addiction issues. That um, just like they are receiving medications for their medical conditions. So I think there's lots of ways to to work together. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we look forward to hearing from more people. Um, and as we now work together I, to... Yeah. Now, if I recall, there's, people can submit their recovery stories is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah, we have you visit our webpage. We have a, a place where you can submit your stories. Um, 
we post blog articles and we're we're what we're encouraging people right now to be guest bloggers. So if you have a particular topic you want to talk about, uh we have some guest blogger guidelines and we'd send that to you. And uh if you have resources or trainings that are coming up and events, send them to us. We have ways for people to share their stories. Um uh it's a a page, a take action on our webpage. Um and we you know we're we're working closely with our our our, our other page um our other initiative which is many faces one voice and on that page there's an opportunity to share your uh, recovery story as well mm-hmm. well i'd like to encourage everybody out there that's listening especially those of you that are involved in a non-traditional recovery, a non-12-step recovery, or a non-abstinent recovery that follow the harm reduction path. You know, I'd like to invite every one of you out there to get involved, to, you know, send your stories, be a guest blogger, uh, you know, take some action, list your events. Uh, you know, let's have a bigger presence because I don't think we have a very big presence in the recovery community right now, and I think that we really could have a much bigger presence and it's a really important time to join together and work together to promote all forms of recovery. Mhm. Well, that's a thank you for that, Ken. Um the webpage facesandvoicesofrecovery.org you go to take action and um again there's plenty of things that you can actually type your event in there and we'll um, review it and post it. You can send us a blog article. You can comment on our blog articles. There's currently a couple of them around the language that is used. Um, And uh, so those are some current blog posts that you can go to and make your your comments as well. So um, I think that's really important that there's um, a venue for that for people from non-abstinent recovery and, and harm reduction voices and folks that have, you know, want to share their stories of success or challenges. Um, you know, either no matter what pathway to recovery, there's always things to share with others to let them know. You know, the pros and cons, what works, what doesn't, and that's what we're trying to build as a community, a learning community, so to speak. That. Um, in order for us to post some things that are important, some issues, you know, um, we want to hear from people about why, why it's important to them. So, um, you know, federal and state advocacy, issues around health reform, are people getting the health care that they need? If they're, um, you know, we've we've done some work are they around active IV drug use, if they're um, able to, without discrimination and barriers receive the service support they need from their physician. Um, There's a lot of work to be done around educating the um, doctors and nurses around um, care for um, active drug users and how to, um, you know, support but also receive at the same time quality medical care and not be discriminated against and um, removing those barriers. So, So we're we're very interested in hearing from people. What has happened since the implementation of the Affordable Care Act? Have they signed up for their health care? What's happened when they go to the doctor? Is it is it all about you know are they work are they um, addressing drug use or are they actually getting you know the health care that they need? 
Um, people come in with complex medical conditions after not, you know, seeing, not getting physical medical care for many years in many cases. And so we're really um, hoping that the, the access now to insurance, Medicaid or other, I mean, they're able to go to a doctor, address those things that have been bothering them for, for medical conditions or medical issues that they haven't treated for a while get that care and let us know, is it working? Are they able to get the care? And what are they experiencing? Is there any um, issues with parity? Um, we don't, we want them to be able to get the, the drug, uh, drug, alcohol or drug treatment that they want, but just, but not just that. Um, the health and wellness, the prevention re- sort uh, treatment, prevent or prevention opportunities that the Affordable Care Act affords people. Um, well, check up, you know, checkups. Uh, dental care, things that we need to um, support people in finding. So tell us your stories, you know, what works and what doesn't. That's what we want to hear so that we can better advocate on the federal and state level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, one issue that's really of interest to me uh, these days is uh, overdose prevention and Narcan, also known as naloxone. Um, in New York State, um, all the state-operated treatment centers are uh, now providing, or at least they're slated to provide, overdose prevention training and uh, naloxone, Narcan, to their graduates. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, there's a huge problem when people are absent from op- from opioids for a period of time due to incarceration or due to a residential treatment. And if they get out, they use again, they use the same amount, they die of overdose. It's a huge problem, so I think it's really important, you know, that we get naloxone into people's hands, that they get overdose prevention training. Um, I know it's being implemented in New York State. Thanks a lot to Sharon Stancliffe, uh, MD from the Harm Reduction Coalition. Is this an issue that uh, you would be interested in? Oh, absolutely. I think that this, you know, it's, it makes total sense. I mean, it, it's not something that everybody is aware of, and we need to educate people. I think that the the people that are in inpatient treatment or in incarceration should, number one, be educated. There needs to be some programs that will do that to prevent um, that from happening. I mean, uh, we know that that's a a very high-risk time and there's uh, a high number of um, overdose deaths um, when people leave treatment or incarceration. Um, and so there has to be something. There has to be some education while they're in treatment or incarcerated, and as, as, you know when they're um, when leaving those facilities, and they have to be well equipped. Whether it be you know if family members or friends are coming in for those groups and to support their their loved ones in in treatment, or um, so there should be some at least maybe discharge um, education. And uh, I think that, you know, so there are some states that are doing a really good job of that. And um, so that that's why I'm, you know, really glad that there's organizations like the Harm Reduction Coalition and other statewide coalitions that are that are talking about that. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, the use of naloxone, not just, I mean, it needs to get into the hands of family members um, as mm-hmm. well and emergency responders. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. the big issue, I mean, around that is what happens next. I mean, it's not the it's not the answer, it's not the solution. Uh, it helps to keep people alive, 
um, mm-hmm. but they can't find recovery. Like you said, they can't get recovery if they're dead, and so we want to keep them alive. And um, and then, but what's next? I mean, where's that link to uh, whether it be peer recovery, uh, one person talking to another, finding, you know, I mean, there's there's cancer survivor groups, there's suicide survivor groups. I mean, what about, you know, overdose respo- survivor groups? Um, there's certainly ways to get people right into some peer support, whether they're at that stage of readiness for treatment or not, or um, whether they're, you know, so so that the community-based response really needs to be strengthened around those recovery support services. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we should also remember, I mean, keeping people alive is the first goal because, you know, the longer the longer you have an addiction, the more likely you are to quit. Um, this is the exact opposite of, you know, the old cliche that, you know, addiction is a progressive disease. It always gets worse without treatment. You know, we know now from studies like a NISARC National Epidemiological Survey of Alcohol and Related Conditions, you know, the longer that people are alive, the more likely they are to remit. This is like alcohol has a remission rate of like 5% per year, has a half-life of 14 years. Hard drugs, actually, people quit more quickly. Uh, marijuana dependence and cocaine dependence have a half-life of like five years. So really, if people stay alive, you know, even if they don't get treatment, they're likely to recover as long as they stay alive. Mhm. Right. So that's the high, that's the number one priority. Help people. Um, so give them the tools that they need, the education and the tools. I mean, if it's Narcan as a as as a tool, that's um, we need to do some more awareness ar- um, around it and help people get it into their their hands. Um, again, the big thing there for for me and and um, I, I think the recovery community is, you know, what's next because it could you know it could likely happen again and um, we want to you know keep them alive and and help with that support piece in the community. So there is a lot of work mm-hmm. that states need to do on the state level using, um, you know, resources that might be available through um, block grant funding or federal funding to ensure that those community supports are there. And, you know, a lot of what happens in the recovery community is, you know, word of mouth through your your peers. Um, and when... You know the people that you're using with, you know, have experienced this overdose and 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 use of Narcan to keep them alive. Um, it might be that there's somebody else that, that has done that too and has found it to be an experience that helped them, you know, get into recovery, whatever that looks like for them. So mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. of it happens on the community level, and we need to find really know that 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 public. PSAs may not reach the folks, you know. It's how do you get it to like almost like a outreach people on the streets, you know, spreading the word, mm-hmm. you know, getting the message out, and that's mm-hmm. I think what mm-hmm. needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Well, in New York City, uh, we've had syringe exchange programs for over twenty years. Um, the, I mean, the heroin injecting community is a really tight community. They know each other. Uh, inside the city, you know, the word about Narcan, where to get it, how to get trained, and training only takes like 15 minutes. I'm Narcan trained. I have Narcan. 
Um, you know, the the word in the city is really good, and it gets out to peers. You know, only a small percentage actually come into the exchanges, but uh, you know, our peer workers go out into the heroin using communities, and you know, the word is out there. Everybody knows what's going on, so that's great. Actually, we've had a very little increase in uh, heroin related overdoses, as I recall, in the city itself. Um, you know, we've done very well. Um, but in outlying areas like on Long Island, we've got all these new heroin users. They don't know anything about what they're doing. The overdose rates out there are skyrocketing. You know, it, it is a big problem of getting the word out. And, you know, you know uh, mm-hmm. national TV doesn't really want to say, you know, here's a way to save your life. You know, you need to get Narcan or, you know, they're all afraid that they're going to be enabling drug users. And that's just yeah. exactly the wrong way to look at things. You know, what you need to do is enable people to stay alive. That's the way they get better. You don't want people to hit bottom because bottom usually means death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's such a significant stigma between the healthcare community and the, um, you know, people who use drugs. I think that that's a really huge focus of harm reduction right now and it's really important because um you know the healthcare community is in the lot is in the business of saving lives and i think that there's certainly um you know the goal is to help people get well i think that the the trick is that there's such a negative stigma around um you know the the drug users in general that it's um mm-hmm. it's just creating such a barrier so you know and people in recovery people who have experienced this themselves have have a role in educating their providers too so it's not going to just come from uh the federal government or the state government or or these national organizations i think it's part of uh, each one's each person's individual responsibility and if community-based organizations want to do some um, work around that, I think um, having a speakers bureau is a fabulous way to to do it. Um, going to healthcare round robins for the providers, bringing people's real stories. Um, going to first-year medical students. Um, I know that you know when I was working in Vermont, there was a program where we bring people to share their lived experiences with the um, first-year medical students at the University of Vermont. So it was an opportunity to make sure everybody had at least a half an hour in front of a person who could tell them what it was like and what what helps in a doctor-patient relationship and what they want to know in terms of, you know, who they are, that they're, you know, and how they're, how doctors and, and, and medical providers, nurses can help them. So, you know, I know that there's programs out there like that. I just think that, you know, that's part of telling your story and learning how to do it in an effective way. It's not just about, you know, the war stories or, you know, the the, the devastation or, you know, the problems. It's more about what worked to help me, um, the solutions and focusing on the solution. And there's so many things that people don't know the medical uh, field uh, could benefit from is, you know, the lives of people. Uh, you know, people with drug use problems, alcohol or drug problems, because 
you know, it's a whole thing. It's it's mental, physical, emotional, spiritual. It's where you're where you're living. Whether you have a roof over your head, whether you've taken care of your, you know, your feet, your teeth, whatever. I mean, there's so many things that go along with it that um, building that relationship with your provider is so important. So that's you know that's, mm-hmm. that's where the role of the community organizations come in to really help people to learn how to talk about their issues and what they need to do to get and advocate and empower them to um, get the help that they need. So there's a huge mm-hmm. role for uh, the recovery community to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, housing is a giant piece. Um, and we've had Sam Timbers on the show uh, before, who's uh, the founder of the Housing First program. And you know what we found is, you know, if you give people housing and don't require them to, abstinence as a condition, you know, the drug use starts getting better. It starts getting reduced mm-hmm. or they get there, they quit. You know, if you do it the other way around, which is all too often been the case and say, uh, okay, abstinence is a requirement for housing. If you don't abstain, we're going to throw you out of the house. Um, it's a horrible policy that doesn't work at all. Um, mm-hmm. So what's your take on that? Well, you know, again, I, I don't think it's not as, it's a complex issue that doesn't have one right or wrong answer. I think that there's room for a lot of different um, models of housing. I think that it's, you know, we need to respect that people, you know, organizations may have different policies. And I think that at least as long as they're not, you know, in violation of uh, the rights of individuals. But, you know, for example, if if, if a, a sober house, so to, call, so, so to speak, is, is uh, requiring abstinence, and um, because they're participating in a 12-step model, then, you know, that's that's like going to the Elks Club or something or the Moose Club. You have certain membership responsibilities and obligations there. Mm-hmm. But if it's publicly funded, you know, uh, treatment programs or residential housing programs, they have to comply with what's, you know, best practices. And, and, if, and as you say, if... You know, housing first model is a best practice. It's, it's evidence based, and we know that it works. Um, but the wraparound services need to be there, um, and a lot of that includes peers, um, the, the work of uh, recovery community organizations who know how to do outreach to folks to get them the housing and to stay in stable housing. And um, you know, that takes that takes like a team approach and. I think that the recovery recovery coaches, recovery support specialists, peer support specialists have a a big role in that. But you know, so you know, in terms of faces and voices of recovery, you know, housing is an issue that um, we're working on in terms of a, a SAMHSA project that we have right now to um, ultimately create a, a training model for people in the recovery community to. Uh, be effective in their outreach and helping people to get into stable housing. So um, it's something that, again, we'd like to hear from people about, you know, what works, what doesn't, what has worked for them in their personal experience, and what are the barriers that they're they're facing out there. So another way to tell your story and take action on our webpage, and just circle back to that and let people know that, you know, we do want to hear um and hopefully we'll help you find avenues to share, you know, to make a difference in your community around those things like housing and discrimination and barriers to stable, uh, safe and stable housing. Okay. One other thing I wanted to bring up was uh, 
medically assisted recovery. We've mentioned it several times today. Um, but you know, people uh, who are taking methadone or suboxone, um, sometimes it's called substitution therapy, sometimes it's called medication assisted recovery. Um, they often ha- have a huge amount of stigma placed on them by you know some people that advocate abstinence as the only way. Is there, you know, how do we get rid of this stigma? I mean, the the it's not just people that advocate abstinence only. Um, our our media, our television shows. The only show I recall seeing on television about methadone was King of the Hill, where the guy on methadone was foaming at the mouth when he ever he took his dose. You know, why why are we getting these you know false inaccurate messages? Methadone makes people function normally when they're at the right dose. Doesn't make them high. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, what can we right. do about the stigma on people with medication assisted recovery? Oh. Um, yeah, I mean, it is complicated. I wish there was one simple answer. I mean, we need to bring more awareness that people are living their lives uh, for many years and and functioning in whatever capacity they choose for employment or, you know, they might, uh, they they can can do well um, often with medication-assisted treatment or medication-assisted recovery, whatever term you choose to use. Um, and so we need to really put a positive face and show people how it how it does work well, um, and that it is a viable, effective pathway to recovery. And that is um, so. That's that's why we um, you know work together with other organizations. The um, you know treatment of opioid dependence. We have to work together, and, and the national. Alliance on Medication-Assisted Treatment and Recovery. It's it's um, trying to bring faces, a, a, put a face and a voice on that, on recovery. So mm. I don't know. I mean, uh, it, it's a it's a it's a group effort. We've got a partner. We've got to um, find opportunities when we when we have things like we show stories of people's recovery. We would never do just one pathway. We would show a variety, and that's what it's kind of like. That's that's a working non, you know, non set agreement in terms of uh, faces and voices. We we can't just promote one pathway to recovery. So if we have a panel, we we select for several people. If we're doing some publications, we make sure we um, represent various pathways. Mhm. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem, you know, when the, whenever a methadone clinic is going to open, the first thing people want to say is not in my backyard. You know, there's there's mm-hmm. always community opposition and and people don't realize that 90% of the people that go to the clinic get their dose and they go to work. And uh, there's only like 10% that hang around and you know try to get higher with benzos or some other, you know, it, it, it's a 10% that kind of, you know, uh, give give the bad impression, but they, they're not seeing the 90% that are doing really well and that, you know, are functioning like functioning the same as you and I yeah. because they have the proper right. medication. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely, you know, what we need to do is to demonstrate to your friends, your neighbors, your, uh, you know, the people that you work with, um, 
and so there there's certainly more always more that can be done okay i want to ask one last question and then we'll then we'll finish up we've been here almost an hour now so uh, but um now there's some things in europe that have been instituted that have had really great success um one is safe injection facilities there's also one in canada there aren't any in the united states you know well, in the U.S., you can still be put in prison for possession of a needle in Texas, you know, believe it or not. But, you know, safe injection facilities have been really successful at saving lives. You know, no one's died of an overdose inside the safe injection facility in Vancouver. And another is heroin-assisted treatment, um, you know, which has also really done a great job of keeping people alive. It's also supervised injection, but, uh, you know, the heroin's actually provided by the government. Um so we really need these in the U.S., but uh, oh, how do we get them here? Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, um, I think there's certainly a lot of work to be done. Um, and education, you know, having forums that bring those folks from there to tell how it works, getting the literature, the evidence base behind it, and sharing that, um, distributing the information, have people who have experienced that pathway from other, you know, countries and, and other places where it's, it's working um, to come and, and share that. But, you know, it, it's a lot of uh, work in terms of advocacy and education with the the federal government as well. So, you know, the, the more you can collect around information like that, and, and I know there's plenty of information out there and there's national organizations focusing on that. Again, it, it, you know, that's where we work with our partners. Faces and Voices doesn't necessarily have any projects going on specifically to bring that information to, you know, stakeholders, um, but that's mm-hmm. why mm-hmm. we um, we would partner with organizations that do that. So, um mm-hmm. We're pleased to have our hands in a number of uh, activities right now. I think our main goal is to um, continue to sustain what we're doing in terms of uh, there's a lot of policy work right now to be done around CARA, the Comprehensive Addiction Recovery Act of 2015, which was recently reintroduced in the House and the Senate. And we have uh, a lot of work to do to um, engage people in their communities, and hopefully your your listeners will um, take a look at it, make it you know make their uh, uh, I'm informing people of the legislation so that they can read it and get involved on their you know how they view it, um, share the information with their communities, your your coalitions, and um, so that you know in in that it has a lot of opportunity for uh, addressing opiate addiction and. Um, addressing the uh, criminal justice population and how to be use evidence-based practices to get people the the support that they need, um, and use you know drug courts and family services and uh, a lot of things like I mentioned earlier to eliminate that box on the uh, federal application for student financial aid that asks you mm-hmm. if you have a, a felony drug conviction. If that was removed, that might remove barriers for many people. Um, whether they're in uh, medication-assisted treatment or have criminal justice background, but all of those, you know, folks who are now able not able to receive financial aid to take classes 
at whether it's community college or, or college level courses to get their lives back on track. So that will be in that legislation. Um so it's it's lots of things that are all kind of bundled up into one huge package. <laughs> and uh, that's our role is to educate people on what what it is out there so that they can get involved and uh, so our public education is, is is hopefully making a difference. And so I want to thank you and thank your listeners to um to to join us, you know, in Faces and Voices of Recovery and help support the work that we're doing. Mhm. Yeah, that that box on a financial aid application is something that's just crazy. You know, I can murder somebody and get financial aid, but if I took drugs, I know. then I can't. <laughs> what the hell exactly. is that? Have you ever worked with right. uh, Open Society Open Society Foundation at all? Yes, we have actually. You know, we've done. Oh, good, good. Yeah, Open Society yeah. has really good information on a lot of these topics we've been talking about, though. So. Yeah, that's a great partner, I think. Uh, but yeah. well, we've been talking for an hour now, so I want to thank you for being the guest on our show today, Patty. Well, you're welcome, Ken. I'm really glad that I could be here, and it's been an interesting uh, conversation. Lots, lots to keep talking about. So, thank you for for this opportunity. So, everyone, go to the Faces and Voices of Recovery website. Contribute your stories. Um, see if you want to be a blog poster. Um, there's lots of things to get engaged with there, so I suggest that you all go there and get engaged. So thank you, everyone, and we'll see you all next week with another show. <laughs>